the morning about break of day. That's when my baby went away. Trying and clean don't do me no good. Come back, baby, wish you would. Hello, welcome to the Stories of St. James podcast. I'm Alice Killian, and today I'm interviewing Nancy McArdle. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Alice. How are you doing today? I have some questions for you. I would like to start off by asking, where did you grow up? So I'd love to answer that. And let me just say thank you for interviewing me today. I love listening to the podcast of our other parishioners. I look forward to it every week. Um, and of course, I've enjoyed doing a couple interviews myself. So I'm a big fan of the podcast. And it's nice, nice to be able to, to talk to you today, as always. So I grew up, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm. But I grew up outside Philadelphia, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, in a little subdivision, suburban subdivision, really a pretty classic subdivision outside a tiny town called North Wales, Pennsylvania. All of the places around where I lived were named after Welsh places. So it was Upper Gwynedd or Gwynnor. Everything was Welsh. And the name of our street was called Croft Road, which is a Welsh word for a small kitchen garden, I understand. So it was a very typical suburb. And the good thing about it, though, is it was right alongside a wooded area that had a creek running through it. And since I love to play in the woods and I had quite a fascination with Native Americans when I was young, that gave me and my friends a, a nice wooded place to be able to, to go and make pottery out of the clay in the stream and catch crayfish and things like that. But otherwise, it was a, a fairly typical suburb outside Philadelphia. And did you have siblings? Yes, I have two sisters are very close to me in age. Sally, who's 10 months younger than I am, is what they call Irish twins. And then Becky, who's 14 months younger than Sally. And what was it like for you or for the three of you growing up there? So in some ways, it was typical, I think, of people growing up in the suburbs at that time. We played outside a lot. We played in the street with the other kids, kickball and dodgeball and, you know, playing hide and seek and stuff at night and capture the flag. Lots and lots of games outside with our friends and walk to the swimming pool in the summer. So we did, you know, had swimming lessons. A lot of it was very typical. Played at the creek, which was terrific. We had lots of imaginary games too that we played, but one of the things that was a little different, well, actually it was probably quite different, is that we were very political, very politically involved from the time I was very young. My mother was involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and in local politics. So by the time I was five, that was the first campaign I remember was the 1968 presidential election in which we were supporting Jean McCarthy. And I remember us all driving around in the back of the station wagon yelling, who wants Humphrey, dump the hump, and other things like that. But we did a lot of work. I should stop and say that we grew up, so there are three girls in my family, and we grew up down the street from uh, another family 
that had five girls and our ages were all very intermixed and we did everything together, including all of this political work. So we spent a lot of time, you know, during election season, delivering campaign literature, doing mailings, big, big mass mailings. And then when we got a little bit older, when we were 13, we were allowed to go work at those polls all day. So we would be the people outside the polls handing out campaign literature, bringing the results back to the campaign headquarters. It was definitely a big part of our lives. And it was an interesting mix because it had some overlap with our Irish cultural background. There's a lot of overlap, I would say, between the Democratic Party, which is what we were part of there, and the Irish cultural scene. So the campaign headquarters was sometimes in an Irish pub, and the we had political leanings as a young people that incorporated some Irish republicanism as in being the Irish Republic, um, Irish history and freedom. We did a lot of going to Irish cultural festivals, reading Irish books. So it's just this interplay between the Irish music culture and the democratic politics. So we were, you know, like I said, very involved in politics. When I was 15, I remember spending all summer working on a campaign for a woman who was running for county commissioner. And then later I went and worked for her as an intern down at the county courthouse, which actually allowed me to have a, a very interesting situation with a famous court case that was happening at the time. But we can talk about more about that later if you like. But my mom, she and was- How old were you at this time? So, you know, by that time I was probably 16 when I was working as an intern. But my mom was an elected official. She was the, became a township commissioner when she was in her thirties and she was the first woman ever to be elected township commissioner and the first Democrat ever, I believe, or at least in 150 years. So she was very involved in politics and in city government at that time. So that was, I think, a somewhat different aspect of my life than many young people was this very intense involvement in politics and interest in politics. And how did your mom come to be so interested in politics? and to enter politics? I think that it was the times. As I said, she was involved in the anti-war movement and in the uh, civil rights movement. And also the family down the street that I mentioned, the two parents were also quite involved. So, and she was very socially conscious. She almost joined the Peace Corps when she was a younger person. She had been raised a Republican, but when John Kennedy was running, she changed to be a Democrat. I think she was very inspired by him. And she was very informed by, I think, her Catholic social conscience about some of the Catholic left that was very active at that time, the, the Bergen brothers and such. There was a wing of the Catholic church that was very involved. And she continue to be involved in protest in some ways, a lot like Anne Shumway um, out protesting war. And I remember when we were kids, we it was not uncommon that we would be out in front of the grocery stores with signs protesting and boycotting for the grape boycott, the grape and the lettuce boycotts. So I think it was the times and like I said, her, her Catholic social conscience 
and uh, the people that she was friendly with at the time. She was also very smart and very, I would say tough, but that's not really the right, right word because if you met her, she was quite mild-mannered, but she has like a inner strength to the, the work that she needed to do in politics. Yes, so my mom, she was the only woman on the Township Commissioner Board and she was surrounded by all other older white men. She actually had some contentious interactions with them in the press. It was rather public. So she was, she could hold her ground for sure. She had kind of an iron will, but like I said, on the, on the surface, she seems, you know, she is mild mannered. Did you admire her? Oh, absolutely. Very proud of her when she won office and the, the type of work she was doing. I would say I'm actually more proud of her looking back because I wasn't, you know, I was a kid, I wasn't as aware. When I look back now, I should also mention that my parents are separated and, and then divorced when I was around 11. So she raised us at the same time that she then had, was working full time and doing this political work. So when I look back now, I'm just amazed, beyond amazed at the things that she was able to do. And was your dad also political and uh, democratic and? No, not at all. He was definitely not political. He was a pharmacist. He owned his own store and he was very, he was very busy with that, with work. Um, but he was not part of that, of the political seen at all. You mentioned that your mom was Catholic. Did you grow up Catholic? Were both your parents Catholic? Yeah, both my parents are Catholic. Their parents were Catholic. And I would say that my family was very Catholic. No one actually became a priest in going, going back, but certainly there were uncles who studied for the priesthood, never quite came off. But my mom was the Queen of the Catholic Federation Ball in Pittsburgh when she was a young woman. Oh my and, goodness. <laughs> and um, taught in the Catholic schools. So we came out of a, a very Catholic background for sure. But then, as I mentioned, you know, the 60s happened, there was Vatican II, things changed. And my mom, I think, became part of that more progressive Catholic wing yeah and then there was this kind of culminating moment in which must have been in the early 70s the priest stood up in the pulpit and asked everyone in the congregation to write a letter to their congress people basically opposing abortion rights and my mother stood up, which never happens, never, this never, ever, ever happened, stood up and basically said that while she believed in a woman's right to choose, or I think she said while she wouldn't have an abortion herself, she believed in a woman's right to choose. At which point she sat down and another woman that we knew from some political stuff who was there with her Catholic husband, she herself I don't think was Catholic, stood up and said, I, I second that. Well, that was the end for us. That was the end for us in our local Catholic church. What happened? So we were, 
mobbed, I would say. Well, at the time, my sisters and I, and I don't know, know why exactly we weren't in Sunday school on that day or at that time, but we kind of like slid under our pews and we were rather mobbed with people coming around, you know, after the service. And I don't know exactly what happened. I'm sure there were many things that happened that I didn't hear of, but we were kind of out of that church, out of our, our local parish. So we started going to another. So, yeah, so we stopped going to that church. Did you find and another one to go to? So we did find another church, which was a more progressive church, which was great for a while. Eventually, though, as they did, they kind of transferred the more progressive priests away. And so we stopped going. And this is probably around the time I was 12, 13, 14, almost time period where we were not attending church. And so at that time, I guess I was kind of unchurched. And I certainly still believed in God. And every once in a while, I would pick up a Bible. And somehow I always end up in Revelation and then freaking myself out and kind of like putting that down. And what was the path your faith took between then and now? I mean, we sort of stop right where you're being young, you're unchurched, you're getting freaked out by the book of Revelation, which is not no surprise. <laughs> it's pretty uh, tough stuff, especially for a kid. What path did your faith take between then and now? Because so that's a long time ago, <laughs> but there was, a, there was a very pivotal thing that did happen, um, which is then when I was 14, 15, 15, I guess I was, I was in the public school um, and there was a, a wave, like a, a revival wave, something that swept through the school in the form of this youth group that some people might know called Young Life, which was, well, a, a youth group, non-denominational. And many people, many of my friends, my friends down the street, my sisters, every we got involved in it. And it was, clearly a, a more, like I said, it was non-denominational. So it wasn't like, oh, anti-Catholic, but it was clearly coming from a more Protestant point of view. And, and I would say more evangelical Protestant. So that experience had really different for the different people in my friend group and in my family. Uh, my sisters and my best friend, my, a lot of my friends. But for me, it was a good thing overall in that I learned about Jesus in a different way than I had. Let me step back for a minute. When I was growing up, my mom, as I said, was you know very interested in religion and she exposed us to a lot of fantastic music, religious music of the time that we loved and we would get these and I remember those things very very specifically distinctly and looking back I can see how they really formed this strong foundation of my faith as a very young person interestingly though church at that time I have no memory of of making any difference the actual church participation or the Sunday school participation but when I got involved in this group later I came to understand or know more about God and Jesus in a, you know, as they say, a personal way. 
it's actually hard for me to talk about this. It doesn't sound too born again like, but but I'll come back to that because actually that's what happened to me. I came to, yeah, understand the reality of God and the, the way that God and Jesus reaches out to us personally and God's sacrifice. I learned, you know, obviously to read a lot more of the Bible than just Revelation. And so I did eventually when I was 15, make whatever you would call it, a personal decision for Christ, uh, have a born again experience. I had a particular moment actually, in which I said, yes, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is my savior, that God loves me, that that's where I want my life to go, to be in God's hands and make that decision. So I had that experience and it was a wonderful experience. I mean, certainly at first it was very much like a kind of really intense falling in love. You know, you're always aware, so aware, so aware of God's presence all the time. And that's what I wanted to talk about all the time and such. And I did, that changed my life. It changed my life, you know, in many, many ways in terms of what is most real to me, what's most important to me. And also in terms of, you know, what I was doing with my time. I spent more time with group discussion groups or Bible study groups or that type of thing and reading the Bible. Not that I did that all the time. I was involved in other things. But it did, it did change my life. And so I was involved in that group for a while. I actually began to fall away from that group when I got closer to going away to college. And it ended up having some not great effects on my two sisters. I think it became a situation where the group was very involved in proselytizing and getting people to bring their friends. And kids, my sisters, for example, began to feel that that's why they were valued is so they could recruit other, recruit other people. And that was bad. But by that time, I was pretty much out of it. When I went to college, I was involved in intervarsity, which is a similar thing in a way, a similar type of group, but for college students, you know, for so, so small group fellowship, Bible study, that type of thing. I could take you a little bit further if you want me to. I don't know how far along I should go. Oh, I want it all. <laughs> so I was involved in university. I do have a couple things that led me to leave that after well, probably my junior year. One was, I remember they were very much into missions, this particular chapter of InterVarsity. And one day they were planning a mission trip to Malta. And I remember the leader standing up and saying, so we're planning this mission trip to Malta. Malta is 98% Catholic. There are no Christians there. And I said, okay, I have my own issues with the Catholic church, but I think that's a little bit extreme to say, you know, essentially say the Catholics aren't Christians. So I was like, hmm, that's not really rubbing me the right way. Also around that time, I was uh, dating a man, who, a fellow student who was Jewish. And that wasn't going over really well with some of the other people in, um, in my in the varsity chapter. So eventually around, I guess, the end of my junior year or so, a friend of mine kept inviting me to the Episcopal Church. And I finally went and I said, hey, this has all the good things about the Catholic Church and none of the bad things. So that's when I first started going to the Episcopal Church when I was in college. 
which I liked very much. Unfortunately, this bad thing did happen, which is the minister who I liked very, very much. He was married to the sister of my roommate. Sadly, he was having an affair with the wife of one of the staff members. And this all became a big thing. And he you know, stood up in front of the church and basically confessed and left. I just remember sobbing in the pews. That was, that was dicey. But nevertheless, I had been exposed to the Episcopal Church. And so when I came up to Boston for graduate school, I did look for an Episcopal Church fairly, fairly right off the bat. And uh, St. James was the church that was closest to me. I was living in Davis Square, like I still do. And I believe I got involved then at the Harvard um, Graduate School Christian Fellowship. And one of the chaplains there, who's still a chaplain there, a wonderful man who used to come to St. James for a while named Jeff Barnison, he, I think, suggested St. James as well. He was very keen on people joining their neighborhood church as opposed to one of the more you know, bigger kind of magnet churches. So that eventually led me to St. James's about 30 35 years ago. I'm also wondering about your relationship with your faith and with God. Do you have any other stories less about religion and church and more about God? And, or do you have stories about when you've especially felt God's presence and protection? I, I do actually have, um, of course, many stories, but there is one that sticks out in my mind because it was so amazing and it still strikes me as amazing that it happened. I was, this is probably over 20 years ago, I had gone off to Guatemala. I had done a lot of um, Central America peace and justice work in the 80s and early 90s, but this was after there had actually been a peace accord in Guatemala, although it did turn out to be much more dangerous than I actually expected. But I went to Guatemala um, to, by myself to study at a school, a uh, language school in the highlands. And then, so I was there for about six weeks. And then I went off to travel by myself for, I don't remember, four weeks or something like that afterwards. And so I was traveling around and this particular, this particular time I was on the, at a lake, a very beautiful lake called Lake Atitlan. And it has one town on one end of it that's a little touristy called Panahachel, and then some, some smaller towns that you have to cross over on the boat to get to. And I was staying in one of the smaller towns. So I had a, um, like a money pouch, you know, that I wore around my, had one around my neck that I kept all of my stuff in, like my passport and my credit cards and my ID and my money and everything, right? But people had told me that there was a, that it was dangerous to wear this around my neck because people could see the cord uh, under my t-shirt and people had gotten strangled and stuff and people ripping it off and getting. So I start, and I knew a lot of people who were robbed. And so I started wearing it wrapped around, tied around my waist. So one day I was coming back on the boat, back to Panhachel, and I had to climb from a little boat to a big boat. And then I get to the town, I'm walking down the down the main street and I realized, I just knew that it was gone, that that money pouch was gone with everything, you know? And I figured that had, had fallen off and I climbed between the boats, but I wasn't sure. 
But strangely, I did have a little bit of cash. And because I was a good traveler back in those days, I had the receipts for my, my American Express traveler's checks kept in a separate place from the actual checks, which is what they told you you should do. So I knew that eventually I'd be able to get some money. So I wasn't too panicked, a little panicked, but I went and uh, as I went to the, anyway, I did a bunch of things. I went to the phone store, had the telephone office and called my sister and said, don't tell my mother anything, but please cancel all my credit cards and went to the police, put out a, made a report just in case somebody turned it in where I was. And then I was walking down and I went to go sit by the lake. And when I was coming back, I actually ran into somebody I knew, someone who had been at the language school and who had gone off to a kind of distant town. I had actually tried to find her there and never found her. And here she was walking down the street. So I was very excited to see her, talked to her, found out she had been robbed on the border of the Mexican border. And it was going in a couple days to Guatemala City to get a new passport. And I said, well, well, you know, if my stuff doesn't turn up, I'm going to need to go too. As it turned out, my stuff didn't turn up. And it was great to see her. And I think she really needed a companion at that time. So I felt like God was working here for sure. So after a couple of days, we journeyed to Guatemala City and got a place together, went to start doing all the things you needed to do to get a new passport, pictures and everything. But I had a little bit of time. So one of the things I had done is I had my birthday was coming up and I had made plans to go to Tikal, which is a Mayan ruin up in the kind of jungle area. And I had bought plane tickets and hotel vouchers and all kinds of stuff from a travel agency in the small town or in the town where I was in the language school. So since I was in Guatemala City and they had the main office for this travel agency there, I decided I would go there and see if they might give me some kind of refund figure it out. So I go there, I'm sitting at the travel agency, I'm telling this person, I can't remember if I'm speaking Spanish or English, about my story. And then someone comes over and takes away the man I'm talking to. And when he comes back, he said, we got a phone call this morning from this priest in Panajachel who said he found all your stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, he said, yes, this, this priest contacted us this morning and said he found all of your stuff. I was in disbelief because for so many reasons, but one that the person had found my stuff and then that morning had called this particular travel agent on the day that I was going there. You know, it doesn't seem like they called the embassy or anything. This is what they did. So on the one hand, I was deliriously happy and on the other, but small part of me was like, oh, that's kind of a go back to Panachel, which was several hours to go on the bus and do that. And I, so I said to the guy, I said, okay, so I should go back to Panachel to meet this guy. And he says, no, he has a mission in Guatemala City or something. And he is like right in the edge of town and you can go to his place tomorrow and, and pick it up. So the next day I took a taxi, went out, met the guy, made a donation to his ministry and got all my stuff back. And I remember the woman I was traveling with, she's like, I'm gonna stick with you. Obviously somebody is like watching out for you. So that was one experience, which I still just find amazing how that all happened. 
Yeah. Yeah. All the threads of it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's many stories, many, many stories, but that, that is one that I still think of as, wow, so unexpected and, and so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're journeying through it, you have no idea what's going to happen. None. And yet I never felt really, I always did feel pretty calm during this experience, which I also think is, is God's presence. I, and as I said, yeah. I do think it was kind of fortuitous that I ran into this woman and that we could travel together and that she had the companion and we could go through this together. I think that was a really good thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, she was really had the starring role in this and you were there as, you know, a supporting presence. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I wonder what her faith journey became. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you. I could ask for more, but maybe I will just move on to ask about a personal ministry that you have that I've admired and especially admired now that we're in a time of pandemic, or at least it has seemed sort of to have an even bigger impact and promise. You write cards to people, unlike anyone I've ever seen write cards to people. Can you tell me about how you started doing that? How it became your ministry? So I've always liked to write letters. I, when I was a young person, I had pen pals and that type of thing. I've always, you know, and when you do that, you love to get something in the mail, especially if it's an international pen pal. It's always wonderful to find something in your mailbox. So I am a person who likes to write letters or cards anyway. And I generally send quite a lot of Christmas cards. And then a number of years ago, my mother was having a hard time. So I started to write cards to her much more frequently, much more regularly. I enjoyed, you know, finding the cards and finding the interesting stamps. So then when it comes to, for example, people around St. James's, before the pandemic, oftentimes people would just come into my mind that I would mostly around things I wanted to encourage them about, something that I, I thought they did that was really great, or if they were in some difficulty, just to say that I was thinking about them. But it was more intermittent. It went into my mind or, you know, there was an announcement that something was happening in their life. When the pandemic happened, which I did not think was going to be this long, for sure, I thought we would be back by Easter. I thought, I'm just going to, you know, you know, write to some people, a number of people, and to try to maintain my connection with them during this intermediate period, which I thought was going to be short, and maintain my connection with them, maintain in some way, some of the, the, um, the binding of the church, not that, not that I'm writing to the entire church or that I you know, symbolize the church, but it did have something to do with trying to keep those uh, connections together. And also, and to encourage people. And I figured that since I like getting things in the mail that other people might too. That was another thing. I mean, people were stuck in their houses. We were locked down at that time period. And it just seemed to me that it would be a nice thing 
for people to find something in their mailbox. And so it's also the case that I think most people don't get much personal mail anymore. They obviously get email and some people are on Facebook, which I am not. But I just assumed because I like getting mail that especially when the, we were locked down and things were dismal, that they may, people might like opening their mailbox and finding something amongst the bills, something that was handwritten and had a nice stamp and a nice picture and a message from someone who was think, thinking of them. I think that's the main thing, just to show that I was, somebody was thinking of them and praying for them and wanted to be connected to them. So that's really what it's all about. So it did become, <laughs> I have written a lot more letters since that time as our cards since things have gone on. And I imagine now will go on for quite a bit longer, but it's something that I enjoy doing. And I'm hoping, hope that people enjoy getting them as well. I have certainly enjoyed getting them. If people would like to get cards from you, can they just drop you a card or uh, an email? They could drop or send me an email. Yeah. My email is nancymcardle at comcast.net. And that would be great because there are some people who I know whose, e- whose addresses I do not have, either they've moved in the last year or so. That's usually the case because I've definitely gotten ones that, have, that I've written that have come back to me and I haven't been able to find their emails. And I kind of feel like bad actually about not having written to them. So yeah, I'd love to write to you if I had your, your address. <laughs> Let me know. So sometimes people might feel shy about asking for something because people often are shy about that. So I'm going to break the ice and I'm going to ask you, Nancy, if you could please write me a card sometime soon. Absolutely. (laughs) I will. I'll put you on my list. I usually do five a night. I'll put you on my list for tonight. Oh, excellent. So see, everybody, it wasn't hard to do to ask for a card from Nancy. And if I don't know if you guys listening could tell that her voice got all cheerful when she heard. So um, yes, you might make her to. happy. Yeah. Yeah. They'll get you on my Christmas card list, too. Ooh, even better. You could get on Nancy's Christmas card list. That's really the big time. <laughs> Well, uh, we've now reached the end of our podcast, and I wanted to say thank you for talking with me today, Nancy. Next week, there will be no podcast episode because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but we will resume the week after in December. And if anyone listening would like to know more about our podcasts or has a suggestion for someone they'd like to hear interviewed, please email the Reverend Matt at matt at stjamescambridge.org. 